understand that this is a manifestation, that it's an op, that it's a calculated merge of the two greatest mega brands in American popular culture. But can we appreciate for the moment that we must give Travis Kelsey his due as a heroic archetype? Uh, I mean, it has been well over a decade since Taylor Swift was possessed by one of her own countrymen. Uh, bouncing around between lazy, skinny, emo British kids. But now the Achaeans have returned from the bloodied shore of the Hellespont and they have brought Helen among their prizes. Dan, America is back. <laughs> this hey, is... It's, one of, it's one of those moments that has, it's it's unified the five, you know, families of American popular culture, however you want to, whatever analogy you want to use, It's it's one of those moments that's kind of, fun it's not political or at least mostly not political you can talk about the psychopathic taylor uh the sort of fan union that you know are filing grievances about her relationship well um, because the, and the and the and the grievance is primarily about the fact that she has now become a uh an attendee uh for a team in flyover country that yeah. begins every game with a, uh, a giant drum yeah, and a tomahawk chop. Tomahawk chop yeah. <laughs> no, but you know, you say heroic archetype. I mean, th there is a kind of, it calls to mind Bilber's great old riff on Arnold Schwarzenegger as just an, an icon. And that, that Netflix documentary uh, that just came out about Schwarzenegger, the first mm -hmm. part, at least is just an icon of a guy who, you know, you could joke about like the self-help, uh, uh, what, what's it called? Uh, visualizing or like manifesting, mm. right? You know, the, all that stuff. You could joke about that. But Kelsey, like Schwarzenegger, who just decided that even though he couldn't speak English, was from a, you know, a Austrian backwater that he was going to become the biggest star in America and then just did it, right? Kelsey basically manifested dating the most famous woman on the planet i mean that's pretty badass i mean by any <laughs> by any measure the the only subtext that is that makes this uh uh slightly better for me uh as a as a person who is very much in the in the uh, position of the world must be peopled is 33 year old woman perhaps finally ready for baby <laughs> yeah well he does he does have this we talked a little about this in the group chat he does have this kind of there's a logic to it because she you're, you're right she dated her i don't know her full hit list but yeah she dated her emo guys earlier on she get yeah, like john mayer gross and jake gyllenhaal she wrote like 50 songs about him i think and now there's this vibe that a kelsey kind of brings to the party which is you know, he's a let's get into like scouting combine talk. He's a lunch, you know, a lunch pail player. Right. He's a <laughs> he's a gym rat. First guy to the building, you yep. know, every morning, uh, to, you know, powerful lower body. Let's, we can <laughs> we can really we can really make this uncomfortable in a lot of different ways. But he reads he reads as like the safe, dangerous guy. Yes. So it's it's kind of exactly if you're a if you're a like um, self-made woman who's like can take care of herself and obviously understatement in, in Swift's case and you've kind of dated a, a a certain type for most of your life um he's he's a, it's a little bit like Gwen Stefani and Blake Shelton right yeah um, yeah yeah you know, very much mo so moving on from Gavin Rosdale the sort of uh emo uh rock star guy mm. to a guy who again is a lunch pail flyover state 
Um, moving on from someone who had 16 different types of skin cream in yes. his in his uh, uh, in uh, in his vanity to someone who's like, what's a vanity? Exactly. <laughs> to a guy, I mean, the, he spends the most, I would say, on his self care routine on on at his barber, which is probably <laughs> what you should do. Exactly. Well, this is Thunderdome, and we have uh, uh, a recording today that uh, you know we are we are down a member. Uh, simply because of the scheduling involved, uh, we had to do this after the fact uh, of this debate. We normally record Wednesday afternoons, uh, a little bit behind the curtain there. Uh, and we now have a, con a conversation to have about this uh, debate that went on in Simi Valley, California at the Reagan Library, the beautiful Reagan Library with its Air Force One. I don't know if you saw dan the walkthrough that brett bear did on that air force one uh plane or if you've been there yourself i haven't i haven't no and everyone tells me how great it is I, I feel like i i really every time i see it i'm like i need to go out there i need to figure out a way to like make it a destination and i've had a couple speeches that were in the kind of the vicinity but i never had time to like jump over to the library and like do that i really need to do that because it's, it's like kind of a 1980s kid you know, affirmation qu quest, you know, like it's so 80s. The plane looks so 80s in so many different respects. Um, obviously, it served other presidents as well. Uh, I did love the fact uh, in particular that Brett Baer pointed out when he was interviewing uh, Brett Hume about the upcoming debate where he said, you know, you you flew on that plane multiple times with multiple presidents. And Brett was like, mm -hmm. yes, I indeed I did. He's been around. Yeah. It, <laughs> you know, in, in the again, to quote American dad, you know, damn right. I love Brit Hume. <laughs> so it's <laughs> uh, look, it's it, it's an interesting place. It's an interesting venue. I wish it had a more interesting debate. Um, it yeah, was yeah. not I, I did not think this debate was all that interesting. Uh, for a lot of reasons we can get into, but but first off, Dan, uh, we really haven't talked about it. I, I'm curious as to your reaction. What did you think of the debate? Yeah, I think it's interesting because just sort of following along on Twitter and and reading, you know, the sort of usual basket of um, center right media that I you know consume as part of my media diet. There's like a there's a a basic consensus and very little. There are a couple interesting sort of Rorschachy or splitting moments from last night, but, but there really was a general consensus. I think everyone saw what I wouldn't be surprised if we both saw, which is there was a lot, a lot of sort of panic, a lot of kind of desperation. The format of the debate didn't help things. I mean, formatting is always going to be a challenge when you've got these, you know, wild West primary electric, you know, fields that are so big and, and, um, and, and diverse and, and 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 as we've talked about multiple times on the show, people in the field and on the stage who have wildly different motivations and wildly different incentives mm -hmm. and structures. Um, so the format didn't help things. Not everyone could answer every question. You get all these callbacks from candidates. That's always a part of debates, but it was a big part last night. And then the desperation, which I think, again, you know, something we've been saying on Thunderdome for weeks and months, but like. You know, the desperation from, you know, the, the push from the donors to winnow the field was evident on stage. And I think everybody saw that. It was at the point where even sort of amateur pundits realized that there that was behind, for instance, some of the weird exchanges between Scott and Haley, which, again, something we talked about last week, something we've talked about for a while, um, that South Carolina dynamic. So that led to, you know, like their awkward, weird exchange on the 
gas tax and on the curtains and the gas tax yeah and and to some other strange moments and i think scott in particular had a couple of very strange choices he made tactically strategically that again are a function of of you know uh consultants and polls and donors and you can see some of the strings being pulled on the stage others you just kind of have to guess at but it all added up to a unfocused um, not particularly game-changing model debate I think for everybody it's one of those things where it's cheap and easy and somewhat dumb to say oh the big winner was Trump again but how do you argue against that because I don't think anyone really pulled ahead last night so the, the one thing, so I I did a uh, for my paying subscribers on my newsletter, the transom. I did a an after debate thing that about uh, forty people showed up to, and and we just talked about stuff uh, for a bit. I would say about ten of us talked, and, and everybody else had kind of listened. Um, but the the general takeaway was people kind of felt that DeSantis did really well only yeah. because he continues to be unscathed. Like there's not. Nobody's really going after him. There was a little bit of a thing with Haley and a little bit of a thing with Scott, but like he's, he's mostly unscathed and he, he really seems to be much more serious and a kind of above the fray as opposed to the other candidates. And I also think that the, the, the final kind of moment, if you stuck around till the end where he rejected uh, Dana Perino's invitation to do the survivor Island thing, I think that actually plays well because it's, it's sort of this, this, I'm not going to do that. You know, it's just like dismissive and, uh, and, and, you know, it's, I think that's a stupid gimmick anyway, personally, but you know, Hey, there's a, there's an executive producer somewhere who thought that was a good idea. So when I look at this debate, I don't see any big changes except Scott was definitely more aggressive in ways that, as you said, I think were a little weird at times. And then Vivek was definitely coming in there with more of a humble attitude. And that was uh, also the spin that they had in the spin room. You know, well, you know, he he came out before, he was really aggressive, and now he's like a little bit more humbled by the fact that, you know, he's on stage with all these people who've been in politics a lot longer than he has, that kind of thing. I don't think that works for him. But I also think that it's one of these acknowledgments that like, oh, my negatives went up as much as my positives <laughs> after yeah. the last debate. But can we can we dwell on that for a second? Because I'm yeah. curious your take. So I I agree. I think he hid his aggression in his pompadour and uh, his, you know, in, 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 his, in his hair. But what I what I found interesting about that is I have been guy number one on this uh, on this podcast saying that you know he's you know and it's again not an original thought but saying that he's running for fox show host and that not he's not really interested in being president you have really strong feelings about him as a huckster and a fraud and i think those are all dead on but what's weird about the way he reacted is he reacted the way you would if you actually wanted to be president mm-hmm. that, that's what i don't get and it gives me a little bit of pause it, it makes me question my priors a little bit and there's a there's a really interesting theory there too which is that you know that started creeping into my head which is you know we've talked about like at a certain point he stops becoming a trump stalking horse and starts becoming a trump problem 
if his numbers, you know, go above a certain threshold. So when he's sitting at whatever, five or 7%, you say this is a Trump stalking horse. He's a stand in. He kind of serves a useful purpose as a punching bag for the other candidates who can't hit Trump directly. So they hit Ramaswamy. They serve his interests of sort of capturing some of that audience for whatever scheme or scam he's going to run later. But then if he if he cracks that threshold, now he's actually cannibalizing Trump's vote um, because they're in the same, you know, a bucket. Yeah. And then, so I just don't know what to make of him reacting so strongly. And again, tell almost telegraphing his reaction. It's only it was almost like a message. I care. Moment. It was it was it was funny because last night uh, after in our after debate thing, we had two um, prominent uh, Indian conservatives, Indian American conservatives in uh, Anang Middle uh, and and uh, Ovik Roy uh, joining us, and the dynamic of like two Indians arguing with each other in a way on on stage like that stuff plays like in the that community in a sure. way that is different than it does for the rest of us and i think that you know one of one of the things that i think happened is that his kind of disrespect of haley had to have an impact on him like it, it had to have led to some some backlash from certain corners of the Indian American community. And I think that that's something that, that maybe played into the way that he performed this time around as for Haley, she, to me, I mean, I kind of feel like she's going to have some negatives come up because of this um, only yep. because the, the, for two reasons. One is she seemed to be attacking everybody like lashing out toward everyone um, as opposed to like being just last time around focused on like the vague. Uh, and and I also think the fact that Tim Scott got so much airtime also hurts her. Not that Tim Scott sort of is someone who I think, you know, should, uh, you know, is going to have some kind of boost from this debate. It's more that, like, if you get that much airtime, why do you drop out? You know, you, you feel like you still have a shot. And she very much needs Tim to drop out in order to be conceivably the second or third candidate in the race. You know, if you want to consolidate support, you want to have the threat that like, you know, Donald Trump could take, you know, 30 percent or something like that in South Carolina and you could be nipping at his heels. That's what you want if you're Nikki Haley. But I don't think she's going to get that unless Tim Scott gets out. And I think that this debate decreases the likelihood of that happening. That's probably true. You know, some of these guys, if you look, you look closely at the the requirements for the third debate, they might this this debate might not have changed things enough, you know, of in their trajectory. And Scott's very much in that bubble, on that bubble, to for it to matter. Like, I don't think Scott's numbers are going to go up much, like you kind of suggested. So it might just he might just get you know cut on, on structural grounds, like where things were headed anyway. Um, but I agree. I mean, the, the interesting thing about Haley is another area where there was, you know, the, it was one of the few areas I should say where there was, uh, like I said, some sort of d disagreement, I think, you know, smart people watching it, whose opinions I respect, like there, there, there was kind of one group that felt the way you did. And I'm a little bit more in your camp of like, she was a little too aggressive. She came off as rude and impatient at times, um, it, it sort of uh, exasperated, um, at, you know, sometimes, but a lot of other people saw her as a feisty mom who you're trying to get away with something and she's not going to let you do it. And they like that energy. And there is something to that. I mean, you didn't feel as if she was not in control of herself or as if, you know, she was um, being, uh, 
you know, overreacting or anything like like that or or being insincere or melodramatic, I should say. So, uh, you know, there there were a lot of people who saw it and and thought, well, we we kind of like this energy and this is a serious and credible woman who you sort of, you know, take her at her word when she speaks. So I don't know what to make of it. I don't I, I, mm-hmm. I think there there'll be enough people um, turned off by it that it didn't like further the trajectory she was on after the first debate, which we all agreed was a, was a real winner for her. Um, But I also don't know if it changes the directionality of, you know, where she's headed. No, I think that's a very fair point. So let's, uh, let's talk about some of the other, you know, the also rams in this, you know, uh, uh, from my perspective, Mike Pence was basically narrating this debate. (laughs) You know, it didn't, it didn't feel like he was actually participating in it. Um, uh, Chris Christie, you know, certainly I felt like Christie sort of devoted his time mostly to just going after Trump. Uh, and, you know, I, I there were several people online who were like, Doug Burgum doing really good, you know, that yep. kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, but it's like, I mean, come on, nobody thinks that he's going to be president. I, it did. It did make me feel a little sad for him where uh, they had that question about TikTok and he's standing up there. He's like, this guy's a biotech guy. Like I, I actually am the reason you have Excel. Let's talk for a minute. Like he just was yeah. trying to insert himself into the conversation. It's like, let him go. Um, yeah. But look, I, I think we can't not talk about this. And I say this, you know, I'm a, as listeners know, I am a Fox news contributor. I have nothing to do with this debate uh, at all. Um, I would love to ask questions at some future debate. Uh, I kind of doubt that'll ever happen. Uh, but uh, the choice of having this uh, Ms. Calderon from uh, Univision, who is uh, best known there as uh, the co-host with Jorge Ramos of their evening newscast, to ask the questions that she did, I found to be profoundly insulting. Um, insulting not just on a level of like, if you're a conservative or a Republican, but insulting on the basis of you are wasting our time. Why are you asking these questions? Uh, I mean, the, the idea that you would go to a group of people who want to be president and say, what are you going to be doing about lowering the possibility of uh, uh, tr- violence against trans kids or suicide in the trans community is something that just, I mean, wh- why are you asking that question? This seems to me to be primarily, you know, a, a gubernatorial issue, something that's a state issue. It's not something that the president is going to even exercise that much power over. And then to, you know, also inject in this, you know, a very sketchy frame of uh, what the Florida curriculum was actually saying about slavery and the like, especially, by the way, a a curriculum that was not drafted under Ron DeSantis, but was actually the black AP uh, drafted course that had pre-existed before him. You know, it just, seemed like that uh you know uh, you can ta- attach the the gun question that she had attach a number of other you know questions that she had and it was basically just i mean is this any different from sort of what you would get from an msnbc host yeah well it it had it's what you said earlier about the uh somewhere an executive producer thought that was a good idea this is one of those moments where the sort of exigencies of producing television and corporate partnerships and synergies and all the equities on that side of things on the sort of boardroom green room side of things spill over into the substance 
you know, or what's supposed to be the substance of a political debate that's, uh, you know, ostensibly supposed to guide voters' decision making in the most important election in the most important country in the world. And it doesn't do anyone any good, to your point, to have, you know, precious airtime uh, be devoted to, you know, issues that are kind of, I won't even say they're pet issues, because it's not like Univision has any special um, investment in, in, in these particular issues, um, or that they're even like uniquely concerns for their audience. It just had the feeling of this sort of shoehorned corporate partnership where there wasn't um, anyone with like veto power or a final say over the Univision part of it. And so you had, you know, this, this person sort of with free reign and kind of conducting her own sort of mini debate within the debate that it's that her, unfortunately it would be, it'd be one thing if they, if, you know, they were at cross purposes and, and she were saying interesting things or compelling things or, or asking or drawing the candidates out in some interesting way. But to your point, you know, there, there wasn't much served by any of that stuff. And it just felt like a bad, you know, brand partnership that was poorly executed. So, at so I, I want to point out one more thing, which I can say because I'm Puerto Rican and Dan can't say, which is that, you should have someone who is Cuban or who is Mexican as your Latino representative at that debate. Having someone who is Colombian serves no purpose. There is not a significant, like th this is not a demographic that, you know, Republicans are trying to win in, or, or who have an affinity to it. And there are ever, there are a number of Cuban hosts throughout the Florida radio system who would have been perfect to just slot in there and say, here is someone who speaks Spanish, but who is also a right-leaning kind of person who's going to ask a bunch of questions. And I think that, you know, maybe they didn't do that because they thought that would be too friendly to DeSantis because those are the people who DeSantis just like crushed it with in the last, you know, sort of election. But the point is there are plenty of other media figures out there. I mean, have Mike Gonzalez from the Heritage Foundation. You know, he's, yeah. he, is, he is someone who can, you know, uh, absolutely ask questions that represent the interests of of Cuban Americans of Latino Americans uh, you know he has the experience of being the you know Wall Street Journal bureau head you know in Asia he's gotten you know uh, he has enormous you know sort of journalistic credentials uh, he's someone I uh, have enormous respect for and he could have asked a bunch of questions that would have been very relevant to Latinos across the country and done totally, so totally, like, yeah. by the way that that would pronounce that effectively because there was clearly some pronunciation breakdown uh in some of this so why you know why pick a lefty you know host from univision it just well if you're it no sense. also if you're worried about further to that point if you're worried about you know a cuban american being you know or a sort of south florida constellation of latinos being too friendly to desantis what you should have done is picked a Chicano from the south southwest from the totally. border states, right? Yeah, because that's not even an immigrant community, right? I mean, nope. as they say, we didn't cross the border; the border crossed us, yep. right? I mean, I know, I know Texas and Arizona Mexican Americans who have been in this country for ten generations or something ridiculous yeah. like that, and they tend to be they're John Deere hat wearing. They tend to be as the polling shows repeatedly and consistently, but nobody you know, in the mainstream press likes to talk about it. those people are immigration hawks, you know? Yes. And that's, that's the predominant they, issue. They that are, is they are border, they are border hawks to the nth yeah. degree. And, and they that's, understand the issue. So, exactly. Yeah. And, 
and that is the the hot issue of the moment. There is, and we saw some of the you know the the candidates try and pivot to it, especially early. But that is the cri- we're in the middle of a crisis at the border. It's the it's the relevant conversation where you, you like you said you know I remember <laughs> I remember enough of my high school Spanish that the the book was called the textbook was called Mundo Ventiuno the the, <laughs> the world right and what that meant what that means is you know there's 21 countries that yeah. that that their primary language is Spanish and they're they're not a monolith and not all of them are equally relevant to American politics but you know no. what is relevant the Chicano community in California Arizona New Mexico Texas you know that's relevant. Yeah, no, I, I I completely agree, and I I'm just tired of an RNC that seems to like not respect that or not understand that, and just accept. In effect, they're accepting the left's idea that these are all Latinx, you know. Yep. And <laughs> so, um, uh, moving on, one uh, final critique of of the moderators. Again, nothing against them personally, even though only one out of three is an American. Um, I, I really would have liked in a Fox business debate to have a focus on Bidenomics and basically make it a conversation that sort of is, if you took over as president, what would you do to pull people out of the hole they're in because of Bidenomics? The fact that, you know, it's, it's a $700 plus increase in household good purchases per month uh you know under under joe biden you you have the kind of inflationary pressure that there that's there you have the gas prices that are there you have everything else that's going on you know attached to that and i just felt like we didn't get that and i i really wish we could have in part because i still couldn't tell you the difference and i feel like i pay attention to these things between the economic policies of these candidates yeah and they you know, it's it's odd because we're in the middle of this sort of scramble of e- economic priorities and policies between the Democrats and the Republicans. The Democrats are continuing their trend towards the sort of neoliberal globalist, um, you know, economics that they've been on since the 90s. And of course, the Republicans are having their populist moment, pro-industrial policy, all that stuff. It's played out kind of poignantly in in trump's decision to go to the uaw picket line and then biden scrambling to get there a day before him i didn't realize he was the first president to visit a picket line and he only did it because otherwise trump would have been the first president to to visit to visit a picket line so you know that that's all happening a lot of these guys have made have made um gestures at that populism and then there's some more kind of uh, establishment uh we ran into this problem last week i use establishment a little bit differently i think than you do but but orthodox 90s aughts uh conservative republican positions on the economy um mm-hmm. some of those folks on that on the stage too the pences and the and the and the haley's um you know it, it, it's amazing too because we talk about the polls that have you know trump ahead you know the washington post poll that had trump ahead nine points over biden and the easiest to me, the easiest explanation for that, given all of this, I'm waving my hands frantically, the viewers can't <laughs> see. Um, the easiest explanation for that is the old fundamentals model of it's the economy stupid. What are the, what are the two or three big indicators of sort of contentment and happiness in the American household, mostly economic? And they ain't good. I mean, the, the most relevant thing to most American families right now 
is that they cannot buy a new car and they cannot buy a new house because the yep. interest rates are prohibitively high. Yep. If you if your your shitbox car is breaking down and 5 6 years ago you could, you know, y- you could pay 3% on it and now you're paying 8 or 9% realistically, that's a massive problem. And it's something that almost no one talks about in the media even though that's that's the the where the rubber meets the road from you know no pun intended for most americans that sort of decision and you need to have some sort of coherent answer to that question um and it's going to involve some unusual you know combinations of policies you know you're going to have to talk about the fed you know you're going to have to talk about interest rates but you're going to have to talk about some old school reaganomics like you know deregulation and unleashing you know the engine of growth because the only way you can get out of a lot of these problems of inflation and um and high interest rates is to just have a huge spurt of economic growth and that's what they need to be talking about mm-hmm. i i completely agree uh let's uh, wrap it up with this i <clears throat> i was uh you know just in terms of the moments that stood out from the debate other than Chris Christie telling Vivek to put his hand down right at the end, which literally made me laugh. Um, (laughs) I did feel like this was a debate where we came away with a better picture, perhaps, of uh, the the attitudes of these these folks on stage on a number of different issues. You had DeSantis clarify his position on uh, the abortion side of things, uh, something that was hailed by the Susan B. Anthony list. Uh, you had, uh, I think, some clarification on on Ukraine and on China and on Taiwan, and I think you also had some clarification, you know, a little bit, you know, on the expectations that we would have uh, from these folks uh, when it comes to you know battling uh, battling back against uh, the bureaucracy, you know, if they were uh, able to uh, arrive in D.C. But does any of this clarity matter in the absence of Donald Trump? In other words, until he's actually on the stage, aren't we just kind of looking at an undercard and we're waiting for Godzilla versus Mothra, you know, with, with you know, obviously Joe Biden is Mothra, um, you know, and uh, and having them, you know, just sort of slap each other over the over the course of a, a you know a, a significant amount of stop motion time uh we're uh, we just are it feels like the preview and i don't know if that's going to change i don't know if we're even going to see them on the debate stage in any capacity either of these old men it, well is, that is that's there a the point question yeah that that's the question and i think people are starting to raise pundits are starting to raise the possibility that there just won't be anything like traditional debates. And, and there was sort of a, you know, a, um, you know, the, the way the pandemic scrambled a lot of expectations for in-person anything, it feels like it's possible given all of the forces and given that Trump has gotten away with not showing up at these debates um, largely so far, you know, what would be best for Biden is for, is for Trump to somehow huffily, you know, assuming they're both the nominees for Trump to somehow huffily refuse to appear with him. And then Biden can say, you know, and his team can say, well, you know, Trump's scared or whatever. But really, Biden doesn't want to get on that stage. You know, it's a much bigger problem for him than it is for Trump on the as far as the primary debates go. You know, I, I've long thought that Trump not showing up would eventually 
have an impact on him, but that presupposed that everyone would go hammer and tongs at him in absentia. We saw a little bit more of that this time. Mm-hmm. I think that's interesting because, you know, it's getting late early, you know, as Yogi Berra would say, and a lot of these guys, not just the the winnowing, but also they understand that like playing nice with Trump has not allowed them to poach any of his voters, has not allowed them to move up in the polls. There's really no point to it anymore. I mean, you can you can moderate and you can, um, you know, gauge your level of aggression, which I think the DeSantis team is doing most obviously, but there's no profit not going after him. So if that continues, I still stand by my prediction that this will that the Trump not showing up, these debates will hurt him because, you know, as I said, you go to see the guy get the cannonball shot at his stomach to see the guy get the cannonball shot at his stomach. You don't you don't talk about him and you don't get the entertainment value that you get from the freak show without the freak being present and saying the thing and doing the thing. So the people who love Donald Trump and who support him, they want to see him entertain them. Mm-hmm. And the and if he continues not to show up and he continues to duck it, I think that will have an impact as long as his opponents are capitalized on it, capitalizing on it um, and 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 pointing to it, um, you know, repeatedly. So the, the only other last thing I'll say is, you know, I think we one of us pointed out early on that it's that it might be the case that Trump is trying to wait out Pence in particular. I think. I think Trump is happier to have a fight with Christie. Um, I do think Christie gets under his skin a little bit, but I think he's he's happy to go at it, hammer and tongs with Christie. I think he doesn't want to be on a stage with Pence. I think there's a little something to that. It's kind of a pet theory of mine. So yeah, we might might not be. I, I would not be surprised if the first debate after Pence drops out, which could be the next one, is the one that Trump shows up to. But who knows at this point? Mm-hmm. No, I think that there's there's some validity to that. There's a there's a particularly personal way that Pence can approach this that could make him perhaps not benefit, but certainly could damage Trump. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that we can all see that. All right. Well, this has been Thunderdome. Thank you so much for listening uh, for Dan and for me. Uh, I really appreciate you subscribing, listening, recommending this to a friend. You can go to thespectator.com to sign up for all of our newsletters, uh, our magazine, obviously, which is uh, an impressive print product. I hope you will subscribe to it. You can use, uh, you know, a variety of different uh, codes that are that are out there, but there's uh, an offer right now. Uh, that's on the website. I hope that you uh, will check it out, subscribe there, and we will be back next week to talk all the more about this crazy election. Thank you for listening.